I'd like to uh, just take a moment and, and thank Hannah Orlando for that wonderful baptism testimony. I love those kind of testimonies. I wanted to thank Dr. Brooks and the band for, uh, for leading us in joyful worship. Brother, thank you wherever you are. There you are. And Jared, thank you for praying as you did for Linda and for the church and for me. I, I know that uh, no doubt many of you are emotional about what was announced uh, this morning concerning our, our friend, our pastor, Alan Redrup. I, so am I. Uh, Alvin was my closest, uh, my closest friend of all the brothers that I'm close to. He was the closest. He was my closest friend for 40 years. But I've got to preach this morning, and I, I do want to make a comment about Alan at the end. If you would open in your Bibles uh, this morning to Philippians chapter 1, we continue in our series. Leo, thank you for the long and lighthearted announcements, which helped me regain my composure a little bit. <laughs> Philippians chapter 1, and our text this morning begins in the 27th verse, Philippians 1.27. Only, and that's a key word, we'll see, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to your this is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have of course he's in in prison So, chapter 2, verse 1, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. 
There's a memorable scene in the third and final Lord of the Rings movie trilogy. Sauron's uh, hordes of orcs and trolls and other hideous monsters march out of the Black Gate, which is the entrance to Mordor, to engage Aragorn's, Aragorn's army, which had approached Mordor as a diversionary tactic to distract the eye of Sauron so that Frodo and Samwise could get to Mount Doom undetected. You probably remember the story. Tens of thousands of Sauron's forces hidden in the hills around the Black Gate came out, making it clear that Aragorn's army was outnumbered more than ten to one. The army of the West was filled with fear. And the men who sat upon their horses began looking at each other and looking around for a way to get out of there. But Aragorn uh, comes charging up on a horse and he, he rides up to the battle line and he lifted his voice. Hold your ground. Hold your ground. Sons of Gondor, of Rohan, my brothers, I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship. But it is not this day, an hour of wolves and shattered shields when the age of men comes crashing down. But it is not this day. This day we fight. By all that you hold dear on this good earth, I bid you stand, men of the West. And with fresh courage in their hearts and fresh resolve on their faces, the men of the West drew their swords in unison. It's a soul-stirring moment at the climax of the story. When the armies of the rightful king in the face of overwhelming opposition are exhorted to hold their ground, to not forsake their friends, to not forsake bonds of fellowship, but to stand shoulder to shoulder for all that they hold dear. And brothers and sisters, our king through Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is doing something similar in our text today. This is an exhortation, not just from Paul to the Philippians, but from the Lord to us. It's an exhortation for us to hold our ground, to not forsake our friends, to not forsake the bonds of fellowship. It's an exhortation to stand firm with one heart and one soul, courageously striving shoulder to shoulder for something that means the world to us, the faith of the gospel. The title of today's sermon is Christian Unity. And I'd like to discuss this urgent and timely theme under three headings. This is such a vast topic. There are so many things that could be said, 
and so many caveats that could be made and so many distinctions that are important, which I don't have time to go through. So I want to I restrict my thoughts concerning Christian unity to thoughts that this text in context draws out. I'd like to do that under three headings. First, the foundation of Christian unity. Second, the concern for Christian unity. And third, the way to Christian unity. The foundation, the concern, and the way. First, the foundation of Christianity. And let me just state it up front in unambiguous terms. The foundation of Christian unity is the gospel. As Jared made clear in the opening sermon of this series, Paul's passion was for the gospel itself. Paul wrote to thank the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 5, for their partnership in the gospel. His work, he explained, was defending and confirming the gospel. His aim was to advance, say it with me, the gospel. His imprisonment was for the defense of the gospel. Here in 127, Paul wants the Philippians to strive together for the faith of the gospel. And it is upon the gospel that we take our united stand. Paul said to the Corinthians, Now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The foundation of our unity is a common belief and a common commitment to the gospel, which is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, because that gospel is of first importance, because it is the essential message of God's word because there's no salvation apart from it we cannot enjoy Christian unity with those who deny the gospel we can't as much as we might like to look we're a we're a peaceable people we're not a pugnacious people but we can't enjoy christian unity with those who deny the gospel with those who deny the authority of scripture with those for whom something else is of first importance there can be no christian unity without agreement upon the gospel now we can and we should cooperate with all men in what is good. We can and, and we should extend Christian love and mercy and grace and understanding to all men, even our enemies. We're under command, love your enemies. 
Paul said to the Romans, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Or as it says in most other translations, with all men. So though we adopt a peaceable spirit towards all people, even our opponents, we can forge no enduring unity. We can experience no solidarity of heart and soul, no fundamental unity of mind, no ultimate unity of purpose with those who reject the gospel as it is taught in God's word. And furthermore, Because Christian unity is grounded in the gospel, we cannot be unified with those who are in error concerning the gospel, even those who would claim to be Christians. In this very epistle, where Paul appeals and calls for unity so strongly, As much as he he calls for unity among these Philippian believers, he adopted anything but a unifying tone toward those who sought to introduce into the church's error concerning the gospel. Look in your Bibles at Philippians 3.2. I don't want to preach the text. It's coming up. But he says, watch out for those dogs. Like, that's not talking nice. Those evildoers, those those, those mutilators of the flesh. He's speaking of the circumcision party. Uh, Friends, concerning anyone, and we see it so clearly in Galatians, concerning anyone who distorted the gospel of Christ, concerning anyone who preached a gospel contrary to the one that he preached, or anyone who preached a different gospel, all those are words used in Galatians 1, 7, and 8, Paul did not adopt an ironic unity-building tone. In Galatians, he calls those individuals accursed, anathema. He calls them false brothers, and he noted that to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Not, not even for a moment. You're going to mess with the gospel. Not for a moment. Why? It's not because Paul has a pugnacious spirit, but because he has a fierce resolve to protect the gospel. He said, we did not yield to them in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So clearly, Paul warned against and would not extend a unifying embrace to anyone who didn't have the gospel right. Oh, he would love them. We're to love our enemies. But we cannot be united. Now, Philippians 1, 15 through 18, if anyone, if anyone had the gospel right, as Jared pointed out a few weeks ago, if anyone had the gospel right, even if they didn't like Paul, even if they acted against Paul, even if they sought to afflict Paul, Paul rejoiced in them that the gospel was preached and he refused to break unity with them. 
And you can come against me. Okay. We'll talk about it. He does get to envy and, and, and jealousy and rivalry later in the epistle. It's not like he's ignoring the problem. But he's not going to break unity with those brothers. <laughs> well, I'm done that part because the foundation, the foundation of unity is the gospel. That's the first point. Let me move on to the second one. The second point is, thank you for your encouragement, by the way. The second point is the concern for Christian unity. So we've talked about the foundation of Christian unity, now the concern for Christian unity. As we've seen, the Philippian church gave Paul great joy. I mean, he really loves this church, and they love him. We observe uh, something different, though, uh, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, that as joyful as he is over them, as rejoiced as his soul is over all that they're doing so well, his joy is not yet complete. He says, please make my joy complete. Paul rejoiced at their partnership in the gospel. He rejoiced in their love and their concern for him. He said they were his joy and his crown, chapter 4, verse 1. But he did have one significant concern which kept his joy from being complete. And commentators agree that verse 27 marks a transition where Paul begins to address that concern. Paul was concerned enough for this church to have already sent Epaphroditus back to them. He got some, he got some news about the church that had him concerned. So he immediately sends Epaphroditus back to them in order that Paul might be less anxious, that Paul might be less anxious concerning them. He was concerned enough for this church to arrange for Timothy to get to them quick. Chapter 2, verse 19. And then he planned to visit them himself if, as he expected, he would be released from arrest. Paul's concern was for their solidarity, their harmony, their unity in the face of seriously intimidating opposition from without and in the face of growing disunity from within. And those things often go together. How many times have we seen it? Outside opposition is very often a catalyst for internal division. Outside opposition is very often a catalyst for internal division. The enemy's design in, in marshalling opposition from without and stirring disunity from within, his strategic object, objective is to strike all manner of fear into the hearts of God's people. He wants us to be afraid. With all kinds of fears. His strategic objective is to strike fear into the hearts of God's people and to create disillusioning fissures within the church to get Christians to separate from each other in order to devour the vulnerable, which is what lions do, and to blunt the advance of the gospel. That's his strategic objective. 
Uh, Christian unity is a great threat to the domain of darkness. And Satan knows in the words of Jesus himself, himself that a house divided against itself cannot stand. So he seeks to divide us. Paul's concern was that the Philippian church might not be divided. That they would stand together holding their ground in the gospel with one spirit and one mind and one soul. His concern was that they would follow his example and be full of faith and courage in the face of that opposition. That they would not be frightened or spooked in any way by their opponents. His concern was that they would not forsake their friends or the bonds of fellowship, but, and he uses military terminology here, that they would strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then he goes on to explain, he wanted them to realize that they're standing together, firm in the gospel, and striving together for the faith of the gospel, even when it meant suffering, was a sure sign of their salvation. Because God grants to all that he saves, first, that they should believe, and second, that they should suffer for his sake. So belief in the gospel with a willingness to suffer for the gospel confirms salvation by the gospel. Do you believe? Are you willing to suffer and take a stand against opposition for that Belief, well, that confirms that God has given you the gift of faith and the gift of suffering. And it dispels fear. Well, I'm saved. He'll never leave me or forsake me. Come what may, I'm, here, here I stand, so help me, God. Well, Paul expressed his concern for their unity in a very personal way as we get to chapter 2, which is a little bit of an artificial chapter division. He expresses, because he's continuing exactly the same thought, he expresses his concern for their unity personally in chapter 2. He knew that they wanted to encourage him. This church loved Paul. He knew that they wanted to comfort him. He knew that, that they had a sense of participation with him in the mission for the gospel. He knew that they were filled with, uh, with affection and sympathy for him. So he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, and there is, if there's any comfort from love, and there is, they wanted to comfort him, if there's any participation in the Spirit, there is, there was, any affection or sympathy, they loved him and were sympathetic with his with his suffering in prison. Complete my joy. By how? Being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. Do you think he wants them to be of one mind? He says it like twice in a single verse. Well, Paul expressed this same concern for unity in virtually all of his epistles. To the Corinthians, Paul said, I appeal to you, brothers, 
by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a pretty high appeal. That all of you agree. And that there be no divisions among you. But that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. His concern for unity is not restricted to the Philippians. It's universal. It's across the board. All the churches. To the Ephesians, he said, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who, by the way, makes us brothers and sisters of the same family. He's over all, through all, and in all. So let's just pause for a moment by way of application If Paul was concerned for the unity of heart and soul and mind in the churches, then we should be concerned for Christian unity. I was reading earlier, J.I. Packer says, we should should, uh, care deeply about Christian unity because the Lord cares deeply about Christian unity. Is this on your radar? Like, are you thinking, boy, I don't want to do or say anything that's going to create any disharmony or disunity in the churches? Are you discerning in what you read? Is that person stoking disunity? So that's the question. Would you say your Christian life reflects or shows a deep concern for Christian unity? Do our lives reflect a joyful solidarity with fellow Christians in our local church and beyond our local church? In sovereign grace and beyond sovereign grace. Do our lives reflect a joyful solidarity with our brothers and sisters? Friends, we should carry in our hearts a concern for Christian unity in a way that checks what we might do or say. Now, all of this raises a big question. How do we get there? Even talking about Christian unity can be depressing. We can have a defeatist attitude about Christian unity. I mean, look at all the division. So a real question is, how do we make progress towards a greater unity, towards a greater harmony, towards a greater solidarity in the mission for the gospel? How do we... Get there. Uh, honestly, I mean, how can people who think differently be of the same mind in one, of, one accord? Like, what's the, what's the road to that? Well, that leads me to my third point, the way towards Christian unity. How do we stand side by side with Christians who may embrace the same gospel that we do but with whom we have real disagreements. How do we stand side by side with Christians who may embrace the same gospel we do, but who may actually be sinning actively against us? I think Paul gives us the answer in the very first verse of this text. 
It's as if Paul is saying to the Philippians, I rejoice greatly over you. But there is one thing. John Piper in his little YouTube videos where he parses, you know, so many verses in the New Testament does this when he circles that word only. He says it means one thing. There is one thing. Only, let's put it up on the screen, only let your manner of life Here's the one thing. Here's the concern. I'm so happy about all of you, but there is one thing. It's this. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Keep that up there for a few more moments. Only let your manner of life. Now, now that's an unusual word in the New Testament. It seems to mean let your life as citizens, as fellow citizens of heaven. It's the same word that's used when he talks about them being citizens of heaven in Philippians 3.20. Let your life as citizens, as fellow citizens of heaven, be worthy of the gospel. So what Paul is talking about here, he's, he's speaking of relational holiness in community with other Christians. Let your life together as fellow citizens be worthy of the gospel. Now our individual lives and our personal and private holiness is also of deep concern to the Holy Spirit. But here Paul is talking about a relational holiness in community with other believers. He says, let that be worthy of the gospel. So that, that's the Greek word henna, which means in order that. So Paul is talking here about cause and effect. Let your life be, let your manner of life together be worthy of the gospel so that, in order that it might cause you to stand firm in one spirit and one mind. I think that's how we make progress towards a greater unity. How do we make progress towards being one spirit and one mind? How do we make progress towards a more perfect Christian unity? What produces and guards Christian unity in this church and in the wider body of Christ? The answer is living lives or interacting in ways worthy of the gospel. What produces and maintains Christian unity is hearts and minds, conduct and conversation, a community manner of life shaped by how Christ relates to us in the gospel. So, if in the gospel Christ humbled himself for us and laid down his life for us and suffered for us and forgave us, then we undeserving recipients of those graces must, if we are to live lives worthy of the gospel, extend those same undeserved graces to each other in ways that are costly and sacrificial. When we do that, Christian unity is preserved and advanced. Unity grows and blossoms whenever Christians relate to each other 
in the ways that Christ relates to us in the gospel. Whenever Christians relate to each other with the humility and the forgiveness and the kindness and the mercy and the forbearance and the patience and the grace and the gentleness and the love that we see in the gospel, guess what? Christian unity breaks out. Unity grows. Priorities come into focus. Offenses are forgiven. Differences diminish. And likewise, when those virtues are forsaken, and how grievous to see it in our day, when those virtues are forsaken, dissension and disunity inevitably grow. And if left unchecked, they produce disillusioned believers, a wave of people backsliding or apostatizing, and real difficulty in spreading the gospel. So, in the rest of the book of Philippians, as we will see moving through this series, Paul elaborates on those shaping virtues downstream of the gospel as the way towards a greater unity. My my point here is that we are unified not only as our beliefs are shaped by the gospel itself, not only as we labor together in the mission of the gospel, but as our hearts towards each other and our words towards each other and our behaviors toward each other are shaped by the ethics and the virtues which spring from the gospel. The gospel applied to our lives produces humility, selfless love, encouragement, comfort, joy, reasonableness, and forbearance. And those are the graces that build us up and hold us together. So again, let me ask a few questions. Is your life and and the life of your family integrated into a gospel-centered community, a local church? Doesn't have to be this one. Is your life and the life of your family integrated into a gospel-centered community? where you enjoy a shared life with other Christians, where you labor with them in a shared mission, and where you practice the ethics and the virtues of the gospel towards others. Are we being shaped by the virtues we see modeled by Christ? Does his love for us, his care for us, his unwavering loyalty to us, Do those things shape the way we relate to our brothers and sisters in Christ? Does your attitude toward that brother or sister or that church that you struggle with reflect the grace of God you've received in the gospel? Or do we refuse to extend to them from our hearts the grace we've received from God? Friends, the foundation of Christian unity is the gospel. The concern, a deep concern for Christian unity should be carried by all of us. And the way to Christian unity is for us to live lives worthy of the gospel. Let me move this to a conclusion. 
Uh, the title of this series is Gospel Happiness. Gospel Happiness. Brothers and sisters, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It is happy when we are unified. And few things produce greater sorrow and dismay and unhappiness than when we are disunified. The more unified we are, the happier we'll be. My friend, Alan Redrup, died a happy man. About 36 hours before his passing, Jim and I spent about an hour with him. Though his voice was little more than a whisper, and we had to lean in close to his face to hear him, he said to me and Jim through tears, and we were weeping too, one of the greatest joys of my life and of these final days has been the fellowship I've known with you men. He wasn't speaking just of me and Jim. He was speaking of the other brothers on the team. He recalled how much he laughed with JT and Mark, who had visited him shortly before. He said, we laughed and laughed and laughed. Days before his passing, Alan is a happy man, happy in fellowship with men he's walked with for a lifetime. He was filled with joy as he remembered the deep and loyal friendships we've had, our, our constant laughter, the sufferings we shared. He was so happy he was just busting on Jim. He would make jokes with Jim that we could, he was busting on Jim we couldn't hear. It was like, what did he say? Which... <laughs> Jim and I were saying, I think he said this, and Alan thought that was the most hysterical thing. He said, neither one of you have the gift of interpretation. <laughs> and he was busting on Jim, I mean, as hard as he ever busted on Jim, which was a lot. <laughs> he rejoiced over the the deep and loyal friendships we had, our laughter, and the sufferings we shared. We remembered together what we went through. And we thanked each other that we had each other going through those things. I was amazed. I'm taking longer than I should. I was amazed watching those two pastors extend pastoral care to each other. Alan, as a pastor, within literally hours of his passing, Jim is telling Alan how he finished well, 
How there's a crown laid up for him. He's poured on the encouragement. At one point he said, Jim said, you know, I haven't suffered, Alan, like you had. And Jim interrupted him and said, Jim, you have suffered. I don't minimize your suffering. The Lord doesn't minimize your suffering. And here's Alan pouring on the encouragement on Jim. Jim weeping, me weeping, me like thinking this is a clinic on pastoral ministry. Friends, Jim is a wonderful pastor. I got, I got to watch him do the pastor. He's an evangelist. But I got to watch him do the pastor thing up close and personal through this. And, and look, may, may we never take for granted the pastors that God has given us. May we, here at Covenant Fellowship, strive together shoulder to shoulder for the faith of the gospel. Through the course of our lives, and may we finish our race as Alan Redrup did. Happily unified with and delighting in our brothers and sisters in Christ. Rejoicing together with them in the good news of God's unfathomable mercy towards sinners like us. Amen.